the book of Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We are working our way slowly through this book. You'll find Leviticus, it's easy to find, it's the third book in the Bible. So it should be within the first hundred pages or so, uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 6. While you're doing that, I'll just mention a couple things I should have a moment ago. There's a couple people in church we've been praying for, and it's good to see them. It's good to see Asher Flannery in church today. Uh, He is here with us, uh, now part of our body. And it's good to see Fred and Florence McKinney. Uh, They haven't been able to be with us for some time, and it's good to see them here this morning. Now we are praying for Terry Guy to be able to join us soon when he finishes his chemotherapy. He'll be back. Uh, D.A. Carson is one of my uh, favorite Bible teachers. Uh, He's been a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for over 30 years. And if you ask him about what his students learn, he will tell you that his students never learn what he teaches them. In fact, he says that if you ask him, if you ask him, they only learn not what he teaches them, but they only learn what he's excited about what he's passionate about, what he circles back to time and again, uh, what he interjects frequently into the discussion. That's what they really absorb. No student learns everything that her teacher knows. She only learns what her teacher loves. Uh, You probably know this is true from your own experience in your own home. If your father loved the Phillies but didn't really follow hockey, you probably know more about baseball than you do about the Flyers. Um, even if you like hockey, you still probably know a lot about the Phillies because someone in your life, someone influential, loved them. Uh, If your mother loves to read mystery novels, you probably know more about Sherlock Holmes than about Shakespeare. Facts are not caught as well as affections. Now, I wonder if you have received uh, any impressions or sense of what the elders and the the pastors of grace are excited about as we follow Christ together. I hope that near the top of your list is the gospel, the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We aim to put the gospel at the center of our church life because we believe that God himself calls us to make it so. And I want to show you that from this passage this morning that is open to us in Leviticus chapter 6. I hope that these verses explain why we talk so much about the gospel. Uh, We come today, as we're walking through this book of Leviticus, to a transition point. Not a major transition, but a a minor transition, a slight turning uh, in the book. Let me spend a few minutes orienting you to to where we are and what's going to happen in the next uh, several weeks You'll remember that Leviticus is a book that gives the Israelites instructions on how to worship the Lord. As the story of the Bible unfolds, God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He's going to bring them into their own land, their own promised land. uh, And he is going to, they are going to be his special people. In fact, he is going to bless them in a way that he has not blessed any other nation ever uh, before that or since. He's going to bless them. In fact, he's going to move in with them. He's going to dwell in them in a special way, his presence there. Hmm. But his presence had significant implications. It was a tremendous blessing for them to be able to say, where does the God of heaven, where does Yahweh, the great God, live? He lives over there in that tent. That's a tremendous blessing. But it has uh, significant precautions 
involved in it. Uh, I've been to Niagara Falls dozens of times. I think I've, I've told you about that before. I love to watch the water go over the falls. But being there, so close to that most majestic display of nature's power, it calls for a certain level of caution. You should be cautious around the Niagara River and around the Niagara Falls. Um, in fact, New York State has put fences everywhere So even if you're not cautious by nature, you are forced to be cautious by barriers. God is majestic in holiness. His holiness is blindingly purifying. And His presence calls for a certain level of reverent fear. And Leviticus is meant to instill this reverent fear in those who read this book. Uh, Thus far, as as we've been moving through, we have found so far that coming into God's presence means you must approach Him with blood, blood sacrifices that communicate your understanding of your condition as a sinful creature in the presence of the Holy Creator. In chapters 1 through 5, we've been talking about this, we have gone into the details of the different types of offerings and what they meant and what they were for. But here in chapter 6, here, verse 8, the emphasis changes. We move from instructions to worshipers to instructions for priests. How were the priests supposed to handle the sacrifices? Now, some scholars, just to orient you a little bit even more to this passage, some scholars believe that from chapter 6, verse 8 to chapter 7, verse 38, we have here a more original part of Leviticus. That is, this text, these texts, were written before Leviticus 1 through 5. That is possible, and I'll show you why. If you flip over with me to the end of Leviticus chapter 7, notice here where Moses is when God gives these instructions to him. Look at Leviticus chapter 7, verse 37. These then are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave Moses. Now, where was he? On Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord in the desert of Sinai. Uh, If you remember from chapter 1, verse 1, those instructions that were given from chapters 1 through 5 were given to Moses from the tent of meeting after the tabernacle had been built. It seems here we have an earlier section of Scripture. God first gave instructions to the priests, and then he gave instructions to the worshipers. Now, the wisdom of God, they have been put together. Moses probably did it. Uh, Put them together here in um, the book of Leviticus. And it's for the priests. The priests who are responsible to lead and serve the people by receiving the sacrifices and bringing them into God's presence. Now, we pick up these instructions recognizing that there are no priests uh, in the New Testament church. Well, there are priests. We're all priests. There is a leveling out between in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a leveling out. No one has special access to God in the New Covenant. There's no one who is privileged to go into his presence uh, like the priests in the Old Testament in distinction from, from everybody else. Occasionally, some, somebody in the church will snarkily say to me, I want you to pray for my request because you're closer to God than I am. And I look at them and they say, no, you're taller than I am. You're closer to God. (laughs) There is a leveling out between the old covenant and the new covenant. But we still recognize that God has given people uh, gifts to lead the congregation. There are still those responsible roles. 
Paul talks about men uh, who have gifts of leadership or those who occupy teaching or pastoring offices. Now, the situation is not completely analogous to our setting, but I want to spend, as we go through these instructions to the priests, we're going to spend the next several weeks uh, talking to the leaders in the congregation, pastors and pastors-to-be, elders and elders-to-be, those who teach in our church and those who will teach in our church, small group leaders, Bible study leaders, those who have responsibility for communicating and, and, and highlighting the grace of God to those who are in the church. It's very fitting that we do this now, isn't it? Next Saturday, we're going to have an opportunity as a congregation to uh, recognize officially two men as gifted and qualified for pastoral ministry. And we want them to know, um, we all need to know what priorities and values and practices are to mark the lives of those God has called to serve in this way. Now, as we walk through these chapters again, do you remember we went all through the sacrifices? We went through each of the different five types of sacrifices. We're actually going to do that again. Um, Now, first, the the order that they first appear in the book of Leviticus, they seem to be categorized by type. There are first the three soothing aroma offerings. There's burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings. And the text says they're a soothing aroma to God. And then there's the two offerings that have to do with sin the sin offering and the guilt offering. Now, the order is a little bit different here. Here, the order seems to be based on the frequency with which they are offered. Burnt offerings and grain offerings were offered every single day. Uh, When you would uh, be guilty of a particular sin, you'd bring a sin offering or a guilt offering. They were occasional. Fellowship offerings were, as far as we can tell, mostly voluntary and they come last. Now, Lord willing, my plan is that today we're going to talk about burnt offerings and next week we're going to talk about grain, sin, and guilt offerings and then the week before Palm Sunday we're going to talk about fellowship offerings. That's that's the plan as we move through. Uh, Verses 8 through 13, though, are about what a priest is supposed to do with burnt offerings. And first what I want to do is I want to look at you with you at the mechanics of this passage. What are they supposed to do with them? And then I want to talk with you about what the text means, what it points to, why it's significant. All right, let's begin by reading, shall we? Leviticus chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read from God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body, and he shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. Uh, There are two clear emphases uh, in this text. Uh, Let me just point them out to you. First, the fire must be burning. The fire must be burning. Did you see that? How many times is in this text? Actually, five times in these six verses, there is this statement. The fire must not go out. The fire must not go out. Uh, It's clear at the beginning here in verse 9. And then, even 
even as he describes the process of taking the ashes out, even then, when you are cleaning out the fire, still the fire has to be kept burning. Don't let it go out even when you're cleaning uh, the altar. Uh, according to ancient Jewish literature, this is a very challenging task. Uh, the, the Israelites were not here in the forest. We're not in the forest. They were in the wilderness. How much wood is there in the wilderness? Huh. Not as much as it would be convenient. This is a, a significant task that, that God has given to the priests. Why, why did this fire have to be kept burning 24 hours a day? Why was it so important? Um, John Calvin said that the reason the Israelites had to keep the fire burning was because it was God himself who started this fire. Uh, look with me here. We're going to come back to chapter 6 in a minute, but look with me over at chapter 9, verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 23. We're going to come to this section of Scripture in a few weeks, uh, Lord willing, a few months maybe. And uh, this is a description of when the priests were ordained to ministry, when they were set apart for ministry. And look what happens after they ordain Aaron and his sons. Verse 23 of chapter 9. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. This must have been a stunning sight for them to see. But look, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. So you can imagine the scene here, if if it's even possible. The people are standing outside the tent of meeting. Moses and Aaron are in there. Aaron has been dedicated to be the high priest. They come out uh, of the tent of meeting. They've put the, the burnt offering sacrifice on the altar, though it's not burning yet. And how does the burnt offering catch a blaze? Fire comes out of the tent of meeting and smolders it. It's a stunning sight. Now, this must have been somewhat like what it was like on uh, Mount Carmel with uh, Elijah when uh, he calls down fire from heaven. This burnt offering comes and the fire from God comes in and lights up this fire. God started the fire and the priests were supposed to keep it burning. Now, we see here in this text, I think, gracious confirmation from the Lord. God has provided a way for the people to come to him through the sacrificial system. And the fact that God starts the fire is confirmation that He approves of it, that that the people are welcome to come to Him, that He's pleased to have them come. I I appreciate this reminder because sometimes we struggle with this. Um, The Bible is so exacting and so detailed when it comes to describing our condition before God. I listened to a lecture this week uh, on the book of James. And if you read that book, just within a few paragraphs, James describes us. It's, it's, it's ugly. We are people with poisonous tongues and dirty hands and unclean hearts and double-minded thoughts. We're full of envy and foolishness and disorder and partiality. We betray God. We betray one another. We're proud. We're slanderous. And the list goes on and on and on. If this is true about us, why would God, why would God be glad to have us come? Why would He receive us? 
Doesn't your shame make you a little hesitant to come as, as if God needs to be talked into forgiving you? Uh, maybe you'd be a, a bit reluctant to, to come. Have you ever had to share bad news about yourself? I, I told you a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a few months ago, about the time that I had to call home after I'd been in a car accident. This is not what happened to me, but imagine here this scene. It's not hard to picture. The phone rings in someone's house, and a, and a parent, a responsible parent, answers the phone. And it's their child, their 17-year-old child. Hi, Dad. <laughs> Hello. Why are you calling me at this hour? You know, what's going on? Well, um, I've been in a little accident. A little accident. What happened? Is everybody okay? Yeah, well, uh, no humans uh, were hurt. Um, but, but there was a goat um, that was being chased by a, a dog, and, and they didn't fare so well. Well, um, is, is the car okay? Well, um, the, the, the bumper fell off. Bumper fell off. Um, goats are, and dogs, are, are, they were big. They were big, and the bumper fell off, and... Well, you, you know that hill, uh, that little bump on Lake Road that if you're driving along and you're going just fast enough, you can, you can like the tires leave the pavement a little bit. And well, I was I was I was moving at a healthy pace, and um, they just came out of nowhere, and the bumper it fell off. Well, uh, that's not a problem. We can fix the bumper. We can just attach it on. Well. Um, there's not really any more place to put the bumper on any, anymore. Um, it, it got hurt in, in, in the tree, by, by the tree that, that was in the way of where I was trying to go. A tree? You ran into a tree? Well, you see, I bounced off the telephone pole and swung into the, the tree. So there's, there's not really a place to, to put the bumper a, a, anymore. Did anybody see this accident? I mean, what happened? Is, is they, well, there were two other cars. Um, well, the one driver, he's okay, because after I hit the telephone pole, I swerved, and, and he stopped because of my momentum. So he, he saw everything that happened, and, and the person behind him, well, when my tire came off the car... And it hit his windshield, the spider glass, it, it, it just kind of stopped him from going. So there were witnesses, and it, it, it's okay. You know, this, is, this conversation goes from, hey, Dad, I had a little accident, to there were three cars. It was my fault. I killed a dog, a goat. I was going too fast, and the cars totaled. All right? Do you see the movement in this conversation? How, have you ever tried to break bad news that way? You tried to, um, this is a strategy. I'll tell you a little bit of the bad news, and, and, and maybe if it's going okay, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you more of it. From what I understand, I've read this about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He used to do this with, with reporters from the press. He'd start by telling them lies about the actual condition of the economy, and if that was going oh well, he'd start to introduce a few truths into the conversation. Uh, maybe if, if we start small, you'll, I'll be able to, you'll be able to work your way into it and it will be okay and you won't be really mad when you find out the actual, all the details. But with God, it's impossible, isn't it? He's the one who tells us the bad news. 
He diagnoses. There's no way to escape. There's no softening of the blow. There's no way you can spin your story so that God will be inclined to overlook or to forget what happened. We stand before Him completely exposed. So when the fire comes, the people, they receive it gladly. They fall down. They worship. They're so happy. Uh, not because God accepts them, He welcomes them, not because He doesn't know the truth about us, not because He doesn't know what these Israelites are really like and what they're really going to do in the course of time. God receives them solely on His kindness, not out of ignorance, not out of glad-handed, happy-go-lucky forgetfulness. God does it out of his mercy because he delights to show mercy. This is a flame that you would want to tend, wouldn't you? This is what this flame is. It's God's fire. We'll keep it going. I think that we can even go a step further here. Remember that this burnt offering was the main atoning sacrifice. This is the general sacrifice for sin. By offering this lamb or ram or goat, holy God and sinful man can be reconciled to one another. The lamb dies in the place of the worshiper who who deserves to die, and thus the worshiper can come. And this constantly burning fire, this fire that is always ready to receive an offering, sends a very clear message. The way to God is always open. It is always open. You can always come to God. Day or night, you can come and be at peace with God. The fire must be burning. And the second emphasis in this text is that the priest must be distinct The priest has to be distinct. Verses 10 and 11 describe this very strange ritual. Um, I understand why it had to be done. Uh, The ashes have to be removed. uh, The the altar will will be uh, clogged. The ashes have got to go. What is unusual here is this change of clothes that that are required. There was a changing area in in the the tent of meeting within the um, uh, tabernacle. There would be a place for the priest to change. Before they take the ashes off of the altar, they must be wearing their special priestly garb, their linen garments. They shovel the ashes out and they put them in a pile next to the altar. Then they have to go and change their clothes and and dig them up or uh, pile them up, a wheelbarrow, a wagon, I I don't know, uh, gather them and take them outside the camp with their normal street clothes on. Why why this, this change of clothes? I think what the text is getting at here is that this is one of the ways that God had built into the system this distinction, that there is a distinction between holy God and unholy people. And one of the ways that he makes this distinction is if you're going to be in holy God's presence or touch holy things, you've got to have the right distinct clothes on. The priest's clothes had to be made of linen. Ezekiel says that priests couldn't wear clothes that made them sweat, so they couldn't wear wool garments. The the clothes themselves set the priest apart. There was a distinctiveness about his role and his task of receiving the sacrifices. This reminds me of my favorite story uh, in the book of Zechariah. I I know we have talked about it uh, before, but I think it's worth considering again in this context when we think about the special clothes that a priest would wear. In fact, I want you to turn with me over to the book of Zechariah chapter 3, if you would. It's a wonderful story in the book of Zechariah. You should be familiar with this great story. 
In Zechariah chapter 3, now you'll find Zechariah, it's that little tiny book. If you want to use your uh, pew Bible, you'll find it there on page uh, 940. Uh, Zechariah is one of the smaller books right towards the New Testament. So if you're in Matthew or Mark, go left just a little bit, and you'll find Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah here, the prophet, has a vision. He sees the priest. He sees the high priest, uh, Joshua. Look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me, God is giving him a vision, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now, look at the clothing here. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. That's the problem. This priest is supposed to be distinct, and it's his clothes that mark him out as distinct. And, and they're filthy. Now, this word filthy here uh, is this um, Hebrew. By, by this word, he's, he's telling us that his, his clothes were covered with offal. Remember, we've talked about offal before, what offal is. Offal is the undigested food that was part of... Um, a sacrifice when you would slaughter the animal, you'd present the burnt offering on the, the uh, altar, but you had to wash out the intestines uh, and remove the offal. Basically, this is, um, uh, well, you know what it is. Okay, so um, uh, his, his clothes are just are filthy. He, he cannot possibly, this is why Satan is accusing him. This man cannot possibly be a priest. He's a mess. He's unclean. He's unholy. He's dirty. He can't be a priest. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Zechariah is so excited about this. He's so excited. Look what the angel is doing to the priest who's, who's uh, ineligible to represent us. He's giving him new clothes. And Zechariah is so excited, he, he chimes in. He says, oh, then I said... Put a clean turban on his head. Don't just change his robes. Give him a whole new outfit so he is ready, so he can intercede for us, so he can receive our sacrifices. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. This is another reminder to us in the text here that biblical faith is not instructions about what you can do to fix your life. It is a message about what God has already done for us. That's what biblical faith is. The people needed to make atonement. How can they make atonement? God sends the fire. The priest needs a clean robe. God clothes him. This whole system of worship, the whole system of the Bible, is not about what you can do to make yourself right with God. It is about what He has already done for us. And your responsibility is to trust in Him, to rely on Him, to receive it as good news, the best news you'll ever hear. This is what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper, isn't it? We, we celebrate God has provided for us. We who have poisonous tongues and are envious and are double-minded and have dirty hands and impure hearts and, and are greedy and selfish and betray and treacherous in our relationship with God, he's, he's provided a way out for us. 
Now, I've already hinted, I think, at how this passage translates, how it speaks to pastors and pastors-to-be and teachers and teachers-to-be and elders and elders-to-be, but I want to speak a little bit more directly about that. Two things that that come to mind for for emphasis here. First, and we're going to go in a little bit of reverse order from what I just did. First, you must pursue personal holiness. You must pursue personal holiness. In the Old Testament, a priest had distinctive clothing. In the New Testament, those who lead have distinctive lives. It's a difference. They don't have special, distinct clothes to serve as a pastor. Our elders don't get a secret elder tie to wear when they become elders. Their lives are to be distinct, not their clothes. Robert Murray McShane said, The greatest need that my people have is my personal holiness. Timothy, Paul says to Timothy in, in uh, 1 Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. That is, there are ways in which those in your congregation, those in your class, those in your church, those in your small group should be able to see how you are growing in holiness and in goodness and in mercy and in wisdom. It's, it's not hard to understand that, is it? Why this is important? This is, this is pretty basic. Huh. Benedict. Pope Benedict stepped down right on Thursday, finished his papacy. And all over the news, you've probably seen the stories, everybody wants to know what's really going on. What did he really do? What is he really guilty of? What is he trying to hide? What is he trying to escape from? And, and one of the reasons that, that people want to know about this, and see, they, they think, they have this strong suspicion that there is a disconnect between the holiness that he, as his holiness, proclaims and his actual life. They think there's some disconnect, and they want to find out what it is. This fits very well with with what the Bible says in this this just common sense. We preach a gospel that that invades every area of life. And Paul says that in Titus chapter 2, you're supposed to live a life that matches the gospel. James talks about the fact that that there are those who lead a beautiful life. Your teaching and your living should match. It's not a call to be perfect. It's not a call to be perfect. It's a call to progress. The elders are memorizing 1 Timothy 3 this year. We pick a chapter of Scripture every year. We're memorizing 1 Timothy 3. It's about elders and what they should be like. Above reproach, gentle, not greedy, temperate. What's surprising to, to us as is, is you memorize 1 Timothy 3 is how normal this list is. Um, elders are not distinguished by their ability to leap buildings in a single bound or run faster than speeding bullets. Um, elders are distinguished not by their unusual character, but by their noteworthy progress in what we're all after. Pursue personal holiness. Here's a second way that this translates, this passage translates for pastors and teachers and elders. Proclaim the work of Christ. Proclaim the work of Christ. The priestly work in Leviticus centered around atonement. You can have peace with God through the offerings and the sacrifices. And the constantly burning flames reminded the people that peace with God was always available. It was always possible. We center our church life not around atonement made by bulls and goats, but by the atonement that is ours through Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, who is the ultimate sacrifice, who atones for all of our sins. And this gospel is to be central to our meetings. 
central to how we, what we sing, how we pray, what we read. I, I confess, this has not always been the case in my tenure as uh, your pastor. I, I have fallen into the mode of thinking sometimes that characterizes much of, of Christianity. A lot of Christians speak and act as if the gospel is the doorway or the entryway into Christianity, and once you're in, you need more advanced, different teaching. Or we, we live this out sometimes. We, we think to ourselves, okay, I have a relative, I have a friend, I need to share the gospel with them, and once I get that out, and they pray, we'll never have to talk about spiritual things because it'll be all over and we've already gotten the gospel and they're in and it's good. Sometimes we think that way. The gospel is the doorway. You don't, you don't come back to it because once you're in the house, you need more advanced teaching. You need to learn things like uh, um, uh, how... How, not, how to overcome your anger or how to raise the kids right or how to be happy though married. You need, you need more instructions, different instructions that, that move beyond the gospel. Uh, and and uh, the gospel is supposed to invade and shape all of life. All of life. So that when we talk about the gospel, we are talking about how to overcome anger and how to raise the kids right and how to be happy though married. Well, why is that? Why is that possible? Why does that work that way? Two, two reasons that I want to mention. First, the gospel is a message that meets us in our needs. It's a message that meets us in our needs. We need to hear the gospel over and over again because the gospel addresses the problem that is at the heart of every human problem, sin. Sometimes it comes in surprising ways. Now, this is not an area for us to rush or be simplistic about. I'm just going to briefly mention this, though. This, this needs more thinking than I'm going to give it at this moment. Think for a minute with me. Of what happens when, when a parent has a child, a child who is a young adult who has rejected the gospel and who's walked away from the faith they were taught? How do mom and dad respond? A number of things come to mind. There is certainly grief sorrow for the life-destroying choices your daughter is making. Fear. What will happen to them now? What if they do something that can't be repaired? Is that fear good or bad? Is it faith-filled fear or is it faith-less fear? Probably the answer to that question is what? Yes. It might be an expression, this fear might be an expression of sorrow. It might be an expression of anxious worry, taking responsibility for things that you never controlled. What about embarrassment? Does that come to mind? Embarrassment. Are you ashamed? You were so sure of everything that you did. You even told other people how they should raise their own kids. And your kids are detonating their own lives. Some of that shame is misplaced pride, isn't it? Do you ever get angry in the situation? Oh. Sometimes it's, it's good to be angry. Uh, it's good, it's helpful, anger that moves you to confront sin. Sometimes it's anger because you're being rejected and you're losing control. I haven't given this situation... Uh, th- there's more involved here. I haven't given it as much as it, it could. But notice how this one event, this prodigal child, brings out in you all these things that you didn't know were true about you. 
brings out all these things. And you find yourself condemned. You need help. You need wisdom. You need to know what to do. But you need the gospel. Because if you're going to move toward them truly in in Christ-honoring, gracious service, you're going to need to deal with the mess that's in your own heart. We are always turning. Martin Luther said the Christian life is always a life of repentance. We are always turning from our sin to our Savior. Here's why you need to hear the Gospel. Not just because it's a message that meets your needs, but because it's a message that invites you to find hope. invites us to find hope. We turn from the mess to a Savior. We turn from the one, uh, from our mess to the one who has made provision for our need. He's come to rescue us and rebuild. He rebuilds broken lives and broken families and broken marriages. Because He is trustworthy, God, Jesus Christ, reorients warriors. Because He bore our shame, He turns embarrassed people into humble people. Because it is His nature to enter others' lives, He calls you out of yourself so you can face what's broken with grace. It's not a simple process. It's not a short process. But the Gospel bears that weight. It bears the weight of long and deep and dark brokenness. This is a message that we need to hear over and over and over again. And this passage reminds us to tend the fire. Tend the fire in your Sunday school class. Tend the fire in your Sunday school class. Tend the fire of the gospel in your small group. Tend the fire when you lead in prayer on Sunday morning from the pulpit. In your Bible study, tend the fire of the gospel. Keep it burning. Melt the icy hearts of those who are under your care. Tend the fire, keep it burning, because this is what we believe and what we proclaim. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence today through Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is our great high priest, our intercessor. He is the sacrifice and he's the one who um, uh, presented uh, the sacrifice to you. Father, we thank you for um, the gospel that is true and good news. And God, I pray that you would help us in our congregation to hold it up always. Like a prism, Father, in our church, would you shine your light through the gospel that we might see it in all its glorious arrays, all of its beautiful colors, all of its deep shades. We are all in need, Father, you know this, of of repentance and rescue. Thank you that, that you have given us this message that we proclaim and we center our lives around. Forgive us for thinking that we can move beyond it. Um, keep us focused and centered. Father, I pray for the elders and, and uh, our teachers, our pastors in our congregation Father, would you enable us to be faithful to lead lives that are above reproach, to, to be pursuing progress and that it would be evident to all. Guard us. Help us. You are good and merciful. Uh, we pray these things, recognizing that it is the grace of God that will work in us to bring these to pass.
Help us to work out your work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.